Hey, if you have your Bibles today, if you turn with me to Psalm 56, we're going to be talking today about a God we can trust. We just finished up a series in the gospel, Living the Good News of Jesus Christ. Lord willing, very soon we're going to begin a new series called Living Hope, Living Hope in a Hopeless World. If we are going to be living out the good news of Jesus Christ and offering hope to a hopeless world, we need to know that God is in it with us because we are living in times where Christ and his message is not always well received. And you and I go through trials at times. We go through difficulties, health problems, marriage problems, financial problems, all kinds of issues that we face by living in a fallen world. And God uses those things to help strengthen us and to help teach us more about trusting him. Many, many times we can't go through and live this life that God's called us to live unless we really trust the God for whom we're living. In Psalm 56, David tells about how he learned trust in God and why he trusted this God. And it made the difference in his life, particularly in the most difficult circumstances which he could not fully understand. But he clung to God and his word, and it made all the difference. The same difference God wants to make in our lives when we trust him. Here's what David wrote in Psalm 56. For the director of music, it was eventually written to be sung, to the tune of a dove on distant oaks. I don't know the tune. You can thank the Lord for that. You won't have to have me sing it. It's of David, a miktam, when the Philistines had seized him in Gath. Be merciful to me, my God, for my enemies are in hot pursuit. All day long they press their attack. My adversaries pursue me all day long. In their pride, many are attacking me. When I'm afraid, I put my trust in you, in God, whose word I praise. In God I trust, and I'm not afraid. What can mere mortals do to me? All day long they twist my words. All their schemes are for my ruin. They conspire, they lurk, they watch my steps, hoping to take my life. Because of their wickedness, do not let them escape. In your anger, God, bring the nations down. Record my misery. List my tears on your scroll. Are they not in your record? Then my enemies will turn back when I call for help. By this, I will know that God is for me. In God, whose word I praise. In the Lord, whose word I praise. In God, I trust and am not afraid. What can man do to me? I'm under vows to you, my God. I will present my thank offerings to you. For you have delivered me from death and my feet from stumbling, that I may walk before God in the light of life. Let's pray for a moment. Father, I think most of us, if we're honest, would say that we love living for you because without you there is no life. But we'd also admit we're living in some pretty scary times. Living out the gospel carrying a message of hope, it's not always well received. And then we've got all the other scary issues going on in the world today, not to mention an uncertain future, times we don't know what, what the days ahead will hold, health issues, marriage issues, financial issues. And yet in the midst of all of it, you said we don't have to be afraid. We need to trust God, the God whose word we praise. And I ask today, God, that what David learned in those most trying times that became such a comfort will also 
be a comfort to us as we learn to trust in God. And we thank you, your precious name. Amen. On every piece of U.S. currency since it first appeared on a two-cent coin in 1864, it has become somewhat of a national motto, in God we trust. During the Civil War, that phrase was adopted, intending to remind people as a nation of the fact that God, not money, not the military, not men, but God is the one we put our trust in for our future and for our present prosperity. Various American atheist societies continually seek to remove that motto from our culture and erase it from our currency. But the motto endures. But in reality, though, that motto has become somewhat of a slogan that's lost its meaning to many American people. Once a statement indicating an unshakable reliance upon Almighty God, the God of the Bible, it has now been reduced to a simple ecumenical phrase. In fact, many times when the issue is raised, in God we trust, the response is, which God? In which God do we trust? In our pluralistic, relativistic culture, there are many so-called gods and religions. Certainly, in God we trust, on a coin in the pocket of a Muslim or a Buddhist or a cultist, means considerably different than in God we trust on a coin in my pocket or perhaps yours or any other committed Christian. Even saying the God of the Bible doesn't help much anymore because so many views of God held by people who all claim they believe the Bible has left people somewhat cynical and a bit confused. In God we trust. Actually is becoming a reminder of a God we don't trust. But King David reminds us that he learned to trust this God and the difference it made in his life, especially in the most scary of times. In Psalm 56, David made it clear that he trusted God. And the crisis he was facing was difficult. In Psalm 56, verse 1, he wrote, Be merciful to me, my God, for my enemies are in hot pursuit. All day long they press their attack. My adversaries pursue me all day long. In their pride, many are attacking me. When I'm afraid, I put my trust in you, in God, whose word I praise. In God I trust, and I'm not afraid. What can mere mortals do to me? Verse 10, in God, whose word I praise. In the Lord, whose word I praise. In God I trust, and I'm not afraid. What can man do to me? When David wrote this, he was not yet king of Israel, but he knew he was going to be. God had told him so. At that time, he was fleeing from Israel's jealous King Saul, who viewed David as a threat to his reign. So Saul and the armies of Israel and many others were out to capture David for the reward of it. David didn't know who to trust, didn't know who to believe. He fled to a place called Nob, or Nob, N-O-B, where he met with the high priest named Abimelech trying to seek some guidance. He fled from there to Gath in the Philistine territory. Philistines were the enemies of Israel. But David fled there knowing not who to trust in Israel. The king is after me. The army's after me. I don't know who to trust. I'm going to Gath. It's the home of my enemies, but no one will know me there. But one of the king's 
One of the king's servants recognized him, and David knew his life would be in jeopardy. Word began to spread, this is David. They sing of him, Saul is slain as thousands, but David is tens of thousands. David realized his life amongst the enemies would not be spared, and so he pretended to be insane. He banged his head against the door. He let saliva run down his beard. He rolled his eyes and acted like a madman, and it worked. In fact, in 1 Samuel 21, verse 14, it says that Achish, the king, said to his servants, look at the man. He's insane. Why bring him to me? Am I so short of madmen that you have to bring this fellow here to carry on like this in front of me? Must this man come into my house? And so when the king no longer saw him as a threat because he thought he was insane, David took the opportunity. 1 Samuel 22, 1 tells us David left Gath and escaped to the cave at Adullam. And it was during this time that he writes Psalm 56, telling about the scary days and the scary nights, not knowing who to trust or what to believe. And he said he found strength and hope by trusting God, and not just any God, but the God whose word I praise. Three times he reminds us of that. I trust this God, the one in whose word I praise. God had promised David that he would be king and through him would come an everlasting kingdom. And David believed God and clung to that word that he trusted. It's the same trust in God that God wants us to have in him and his word. Because as David reminds us, in every circumstance, God wants us to trust him because we trust his word. Why can we trust God's word? Because his word is truth and his word is eternal. Things that make the difference for every one of us who believe him. We can put our trust in God because his word is truth. If you jump ahead with me a little bit into the New Testament in John 17, we pick up the story with Jesus with his disciples at the Last Supper, the night before he's going to the cross. The disciples are afraid. Outside are hostile crowds. They've already put the word out. If anybody sees Jesus, arrest them and anybody with him. Jesus has already told them he's leaving. The disciples are in a panic, and Jesus speaks some of the most comforting words he ever spoke to them. And in John 17, he begins to pray for them in the longest recorded prayer we have of Jesus. And this is what he said in John 17 when he's praying. Verse 13, John 17, 13. I'm coming to you now, but I say these things while I'm still in the world so that they may have the full measure of my joy within them. I've given them your word, and the world has hated them, for they're not of the world any more than I am of the world. My prayer is not that you take them out of the world that you protect them from the evil one. They are not of the world, even as I am not of it. Sanctify them by the truth. Your word is truth. People, we are living in a culture of truth redefined. I want to give this little disclaimer because I've got a little heat from using this illustration. I'm using a political illustration, but I'm not promoting a candidate, nor am I putting one down. I'm using it because it illustrates perfectly what I'm talking about that's going on in our country. If it makes any difference, I'm not a Democrat, I'm not a Republican, I'm an independent. I vote for people based on their views and where they stand with God, and the best of the selections that are left after this whole process sorts itself out. So with saying all that, I hope, I hope no one will misunderstand my point here. I was listening to an interview of Hillary Clinton about a week or 10 days ago. I believe it was a CBS correspondent. 
who mentioned to her that there is a credibility problem with over 70% of the American people who think she habitually lies. So he courageously asked her, have you ever lied? Now, everybody on the planet knows the answer is yes. I'm not talking about Hillary Clinton. I'm talking about me. Every one of us have lied. We, if we're ever asked that question, have you ever lied, you know the answer has to be yes. Yes, I've lied. Sometimes intentionally, sometimes unintentionally. I regret it. I'm embarrassed about it. I'm sorry. I try not to do it as a practice, but you're asking me, have I ever? Of course I have. Yes, I have lied. That's the honest answer. That's what you expect anybody to say. In the context of this interview, her answer was, I don't believe I have. Now, I don't know in fairness whether she meant, I don't believe I have in regards to specific things that people are accusing her of, He said, have you ever lied? She said, I've always tried to level with the American people. Look, I I can't comment on all the other things Hillary does or says. I don't know her. I go by what you do. I hear what people say. I hear what she says. I hear what people say about what she says. I've never talked to the woman. But I can tell you this. When anyone says, I don't believe I've ever lied, you know they're lying or they're totally misinformed or... They have a totally different understanding of what truth means. And therein lies the problem. Do you remember, some of you are old enough to remember when her husband was president and he had that unfortunate moral lapse of having sex with a woman in the White House. And when he was confronted about it, you remember, he swore that he didn't have sex with her. And the inquirers asked the question, is that true? That's a very easy question. Is that true? And you remember his now famous answer. It all depends on what the meaning of is is. Now, what's significant about that is not just a reflection on the Clintons or anybody else. It's a reflection on our society as a whole. We're living in a world with truth redefined. You see, with the loss of moral absolutes, self becomes the definer of truth. Truth becomes whatever you perceive truth to be, so truth is relative in most people's minds because it's always changing. Consequently, there is a truth for me and a truth for you, but there's not a universal absolute of truth. So it makes it hard to believe when you ask people, are you telling the truth? It makes it hard to believe them because does it mean, yes, I'm telling you the truth is an absolute fact as seen by a moral absolute God who verifies this fact, or I'm telling you, yes, I'm telling you the truth as I perceive it to be true for me. And that's the world we're living in. So people have a hard time trusting people's word. But you see, that's not God. God doesn't lie. Because God is truth. And therefore, his word is truth and can always be trusted to be true. That's what Jesus was declaring in his prayer for the disciples that night at the Last Supper before he went to the cross. I'm leaving you, but I'm giving you something that you can hold on to that will not change. John 17, verse 13, I'm coming to you now, but I say these things while I'm still in the world so that they may have the full measure of my joy within them. I have given them your word. And the world has hated them, for they're not of the world any more than I am of the world. 
My prayer is not that you take them out of the world, but that you protect them from the evil one. They are not of the world, even as I am not of it. Jesus said, I gave them your word, and the world hates them the way they hate me. People, if you're going to live for the truth in the world today, the world is going to marginalize you. They're going to try to convince you that you are wrong, that you're out of touch, that you are bigoted, that you're somehow prejudiced, or you're naive. Jesus knew that the world system led by the evil one hated him because he is the truth. Is it any surprise that Satan tries to keep Christians out of this book? Is it any surprise that he tries to convince us to soften our stand in the truth? Look, the evil one is a liar and the father of lies. If he can minimize truth in the world, which has been entrusted to God's people, he can control everything with a lie. The reason God gave his word to us is so that we would have truth and we could trust this God so that as we trust him and believe his word, we, by the truth, can expose that the world is living in a lie. And when people see that, they can turn to the truth and have a hope of being saved. That's why we're called to live the truth. So Jesus prays. Not that God would take us out of the world, but he'd protect us from the evil one. So how is God going to protect his people from Satan's opposition, from Satan's discouragement, from Satan's distortions, from Satan's lies? He said, I'm going to set them apart. I'm going to sanctify them. I'm going to set them apart in the world. I'm going to give them my word. Your word is truth. And you never have to be ashamed to believe it. This is why he said in John 17, verse 7, sanctify them by the truth. Your word is truth. This is why when everything was closing in on David, he looked to God and his word. Psalm 56, verse 3, when I'm afraid... I put my trust in you, in God, whose word I praise. In God I trust, and I'm not afraid. What can mere mortals do to me? You see, God's word is absolute. It doesn't change. It isn't relative. It doesn't morph. It isn't different for each generation. It's truth. Listen to what David said, Psalm 119, if he, in fact, is the author of this. Psalm 119, verse 105, your word is a lamp for my feet, and a light for my path. Have you ever noticed how everybody's in a hurry? But most people have no idea where they're going. They're walking in total spiritual darkness. Your word is a lamp for my feet and a light on my path. You want to know who you are and who he is and where you are and where you're going? God's word will tell you that. I've taken an oath and confirmed it that I will follow your righteous laws. I've suffered much Preserve my life, Lord, according to your word. Accept, Lord, the willing praise of my mouth and teach me your laws. Though I constantly take my life in my hands, I will not forget your law. The wicked have set a snare for me, but I've not strayed from your precepts. Your statutes are my heritage forever. They are the joy of my heart. My heart is set on keeping your decrees to the very end. Is God's word the joy of your heart? Do you trust this word more than the voices around you or the voices of the culture? 
I want to be careful when I say this so I never mislead anybody or, and I mean what I say. I love Jesus. I love him. And I owe my life to him. And I love to hear him speak. This word is his voice. And I don't understand a lot of stuff in here. I don't. There's things in here I cannot figure out. I don't know how they work. But I believe them. And I know that if I will believe and follow what he tells me, in the end he'll show me how everything fits together and I will never be disappointed because I said, yes, God, I will believe you even when I don't understand. You see, when people abandon the absolute moral guiding compass of God's word, they're destined to a life of confusion, manipulation, and fear. They have no moral objective basis for life. It's all what they think. I was reading a piece by Dennis Prager, nationally syndicated radio talk show host in L.A. He writes for papers like the Washington Times. He was once telling about a 26-year-old Swedish foreign exchange student who was in America. He asked her about her views on life, and he asked her, do you believe in God or any religion? No, that's silly, she replied. Then how do you know what's right and wrong, I asked. My heart tells me. She responded. Prager said, therein lies the problem. People are told, follow your heart. So people follow their hearts to determine right and wrong rather than listening to the moral absolutes of an eternal creator. And the reason that creates such a mess when you do that, when you just follow your heart and don't have any objective standard like God's word to follow, that's truth. The problem is our hearts are sick and terribly unreliable because of sin. Jeremiah said in Jeremiah 17, 9, the heart is deceitful above all things and beyond cure. Who can understand it? People who trust their hearts are the ones who come up with this stuff awash in moral relativism. And so they pursue and promote things like premarital sex is all right. Abortion is fine. Homosexuality is normal. Same-sex marriage is perfectly acceptable. Unbiblical divorces, unbiblical marriages all kinds of things like that are defined not by God, but by their own hearts, and they lie to themselves to justify what their own sick and sinful hearts want to accept. Jeremiah said in Jeremiah 17, verse 5, this is what the Lord says. Cursed is the one who trusts in man, who draws strength from mere flesh, and whose heart turns away from the Lord. That person will be like a bush in the wastelands, They'll not see prosperity when it comes. They'll dwell in the parched places of the desert, in a salt land where no one lives. That's the destiny of people who don't follow God. It ends up bad, empty. But blessed is the one who trusts in the Lord, whose confidence is in him. They will be like a tree planted by the water that sends out roots by the stream. It does not fear when heat comes. Its leaves are always green. It has no worries in a year of drought. It never fails to bear fruit. People, if you trust God and believe in him, are you going to have an easy life? No, you won't. We live in a fallen world. Stuff happens. Happens all the time. But have you ever seen the difference in a person who trusts God going through those same things and someone who doesn't? And I've stood at memorial services next to a casket 
of a guy who died without Jesus and his family doesn't know the Lord, I can assure you they're handling it a lot differently than a guy who they know where that loved one is, they know that he's at home with Jesus, and the family is saying, this is hard, but we trust God, we believe him. Makes a difference. So the question is, whom or what are we trusting? What voice do we believe? David said, when I'm afraid, I put my trust in you, in God, whose word I praise, in God I trust. And not only because his word is truth, but he said we can put our trust in God because his word is eternal. If you go forward just a little more in your New Testament to the writings of Peter, and we hope to get to this book for a good part of 2016, Living Hope in a Hopeless World, Peter is also writing to a group of very persecuted believers. And when you're going through persecution for your faith in Jesus, you want to know that what you're believing is true, that it's reliable. When Peter writes to them, he says in 1 Peter 1, verse 22, now that you have purified yourselves by obeying the truth so that you have sincere love for each other, love one another deeply from the heart. For you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable through the living and enduring word of God. For all people are like grass, and all their glory is like the flowers of the field. The grass withers, the flowers fall, but the word of the Lord endures forever. And this is the word that was preached to you. God's word never changes because it's eternally true. It's always right. Mine is not. I have to change my word more often than I wished. I remember once when our kids were small, we were traveling to Brainerd, Minnesota, northern Minnesota, driving. We spent the night in Ogallala, Nebraska. If you know, have you ever been there? Great little town, full of Western history. So when you get up, the natural question is, how long do we have to drive today, Dad? Well, I calculated it to be 600 miles. I said, look, we leave at 7 in the morning. We will probably get there by a late dinner, 5, 6 o'clock maybe. Great. So we start driving. I'm driving all day long. Seven o'clock comes. The kids are saying, Daddy, when are we going to get there? Well, it's taking a little longer than I thought. I I don't know what's the problem, but I I think maybe by nine o'clock we ought to be there. Thinking I'd left plenty of time. Nine o'clock comes and goes, Daddy, when are we going to get there? Well, I don't know. Um... I don't know why it's taking this long. We should have been there by now. I'm thinking 11 o'clock. By 11 o'clock, we ought to be there. 11 o'clock comes, kids are asleep, and Carla's asking me, honey, when are we going to get there? (laughs) I said, hon, I don't get it. We should have been there by now. 1 o'clock in the morning, we come rolling in. Now, did I lie to my family? No, I didn't. I made a mistake. It wasn't 600 miles. It was 850 You see, as well-intentioned as I was, I'm often wrong about things because I don't see everything accurately. I make mistakes. I have to come back and own those mistakes. I have to apologize. People who ever tell you you don't apologize to your kids or your family, they're nuts. The family knows that I would never intentionally lead them astray, but Dad makes mistakes, and when I do, I own it, and I apologize. And I have to change my word because 
I don't know everything. Do you know that'll never happen with God? Never. God's word is eternal. And what he tells us will never change. It's the same in every generation. Peter told a group of suffering believers they could trust God and trust his word because God's word is eternal. It's always been, is now, and forever will be the same. And it's never wrong. He told them in verse 22, now that you have purified yourselves by obeying the truth so that you have sincere love for each other, love one another deeply from the heart. For you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, through the living and enduring word of God. People have said today, you know what? I wish we didn't have so much denominationalism. I wish we didn't have so much nationalism. I wish we didn't have so much differences of language and culture. I wish all Christians could just get together and be unified. You know what does that more than anything else? Persecution. I'll tell you, man, when you're standing in the fires of persecution and you've got other Christians around you, you don't care what denomination they are. You don't care their culture. You don't care their background. You don't care about anything. All you want to know is, do you know Jesus and are you willing to stand with me in the face of this fire, because all that matters right now is who Jesus is and that we're trusting him together. These Christians that Peter wrote to were in that fire of persecution. And he said, you purified yourselves by obeying the truth. Now love each other deeply from the heart. You're getting to the core of what the Christian life is about. He said, you've been born again, you've been saved and brought into relationship with God and each other by believing and obeying the living, enduring, eternal word of God. And then Peter tells him in verse 24, all people are like grass and their glory is like the flowers of the field. You know those people that oppose you? The people who tell you you're wrong? The people who ridicule you? The people who tell you you're nuts for believing this God? Remember, their views, their prosperity, their glory, their philosophies, their words are going to pass away and fade. They're like grass that disappears. But the word of the Lord endures forever, and this is the word that was preached to you. God's word never changes. What he promises he will do, what he says it will come to pass. When the writer of Hebrews was writing to another group of persecuted believers, he wrote to them about believing the promises of God. He said God made promises to Abraham and kept those promises. And Abraham trusted God because he trusted his word, which is eternal. He said people swear by something greater than themselves. Hebrews 6, verse 16. People swear by someone greater than themselves, and the oath confirms what's said and puts an end to all argument. When you and I want people to believe us, what do we say? I swear on the Bible. I swear by my mother's grave. I swear I'm telling you the truth. When God makes a promise to us, who does he swear by to give us the confidence that what we have heard will be? He swears by himself because there's no one greater. Because God wanted to make the unchanging nature of his purpose very clear to the heirs of what was promised, he confirmed it with an oath. God did this so that by two unchangeable things in which it's impossible for God to lie, we who have fled to take hold of the hope set before us may be greatly encouraged. We have this hope as an anchor for the soul, firm and secure. It enters the inner sanctuary behind the curtain. God did this. He swore by himself 
for two unchangeable things so that our hope will always be in his word that never changes. What, what are those two unchangeable things? God's person and God's word. By my person and my word, I swear to you that you trust this, you will not be disappointed. In fact, the writer said, when you're going through the ringer, you hold on to what God promises. And it's like taking a hook and throwing it in the anchor behind the curtain in the Holy of Holies in heaven where God's very presence dwells. And whatever you're living out, you're holding on to this word. That word is like a rope that goes to God. And you remember this. It's God who's holding on the other end of that. And he's never letting go. Never letting go. God has revealed his word to us in his son. Jesus is the living word. God has revealed his word to us in the Bible. The Bible is the written word. We have the written word to reveal to us the living word so that we will always live in the word and put our trust in a word that is eternal. David said in Psalm 119, verse 89, your word, Lord, is eternal. It stands firm in the heavens. Your faithfulness continues through all generations. You establish the earth, and it endures. David said in Psalm 56, verse 10, In God whose word I praise, in the Lord whose word I praise, in God I trust and am not afraid. What can man do to me? I was reading a piece by Charlie Crow, who was a pastor, I believe, from Covington, Georgia, telling about a time years ago, he said, when a friend invited him to fly across central Florida in his private plane. He said, during my friend's 50 years of experience as a pilot, he flew all over the world and faced every possible condition. On our return trip, the airplane began to shake and the engine started coughing. We were losing power and going down. As I looked down from an altitude of a few thousand feet, terror gripped me, and I had an overwhelming urge to do something. But there was nothing I could do. I had no experience in flying, landing, or fixing a plane. All those instruments and dials are a blur to me. And in the midst of my terror, I looked over at my friend who looked totally calm, assuring me that things would be fine. He's adjusting knobs. I have no idea what he's doing. But this plane continues to cough and sputter, and he just guides it down and lands safely on the runway. Charlie Crow went on to say, there are times in life when I desperately want to grab control. My experience in the plane reminds me that if I take control, it'll end up in ruin or destroy my life. At those moments, I must resist the urge to take things into my own hands and trust the one who has seen it all before and who knows exactly what he's doing. That someone is God. God in whom we trust. The one who David said you can trust in every situation because his word is truth and his word is eternal. When I'm afraid, I put my trust in you, in God whose word I praise. In God I trust and am not afraid. I'm under vows to you, my God, verse 12. I will present my thank offerings to you. For you have delivered me from death and my feet from stumbling, that I may walk before God in the light of life. 
a lot of voices out there. David said, God, you can trust. And those who trust in the Lord will never be disappointed. Father, thank you for this reminder. We're living in a world of increasing voices that get louder and louder and louder, and they're drowning out your voice to many. What used to be an understood national motto is quickly slipping away to just words on a coin that we barely see. So, Lord, I'm asking you to help me that each time I see that phrase, in God we trust, to ask the question, do I? Do I believe and trust this God whose word is truth and whose word is eternal? Thank you, God, that there are many things we cannot understand, futures we cannot see. But when we trust you, we don't have to be afraid. Thank you, God, for our hope that's anchored in your hands. We thank you in your precious name. Amen.